You're listening to the New City Church Podcast. These episodes are recorded live on Gadigal land. Sometimes the audio quality might not be perfect because what you're listening to is a conversation. We don't edit out the chatter. We think that's what makes it authentic. Wherever you're tuning in from, we hope you find this episode encouraging. Hey to people online as well. Good to see you slash good for you to see me because I can't see you, but hi. (laughs) Um, So I have some thoughts on this passage, but uh, it's always really lovely to hear some of your thoughts if you have them. So I just wanted to open it up and ask, like, what do you, is there anything that you're sitting with when you read that? Um, Are there questions that you have? Are there things that confront you? Uh, Is there anything that you're like, that's popping out to you from the passage there? Um, and if it's just awkward silence, then, you know, that's also my jam as well. And I can hold that. So I'll hold that for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you just kind of shout it out and I'll repeat it back. So people online, and if you're online, feel free to type in, um, something and one of us here will share it, Chris or Thomas. Anything popping out to you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Davis shared, I find it really interesting that there is corruption within Jesus' team and uh, he thinks that Jesus knew about it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's there and it provides a bit of comfort when you're working in institutions of some sort. Is that a good... Or... Yeah, sure. Yeah, when you're frustrated with institutions that, yeah, might not be so great. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so Chris has shared that um, so much of what is reflected in this passage really reflects like modern day today and particularly religious institutions, but, you know, more broadly as well um, and how there's this desire for them to protect the nation and the temple uh, without seeing um, the people in the middle or, you know, is that that fair enough to say or? Yeah, so a bit of scapegoating happening, yeah, and so they're choosing Jesus and Lazarus to pin this thing on to protect themselves, and that's so much of how things work, yeah, that we see kind of mirrored back to us in this passage, yeah. Yeah, I love that, yeah. I mean, I don't love that, but good reflection, yeah.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friends are saying that uh, they find it just a little bit laughable that the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, they're all in there, you know, just really trying to keep this thing under control, but it's out of their control, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they don't really um, get painted very well, do they? Yeah. 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 Joel's just mentioned, and I've heard this one as well. Some of us might be familiar with the interpretation of, you know, you'll always have the poor among you used to say, well, actually, you know, we don't have to care for the poor, but let's put our money towards Jesus and the Jesus ministry and just shirking all responsibility. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chris has pointed out a very helpful line that in there it's revealed Judas's motives in saying, you know, this should have been given to the poor when actually behind that is I want the, that money, you know, that's for me. Yeah. Um, well, this is actually a pretty significant little point in the narrative of John. Like it's, it's kind of in the middle of uh, some of the action that's been going on. Um, there's been a bunch of signs throughout the gospel. And then this one of Lazarus being raised from the dead is like a pretty big sign that John points to. Um, there's a bunch of I am statements that you might be familiar with. Is there something going on with PowerPoint? But I do, yeah. Uh, there should be a John 12 one in there somewhere. Stored in there. We'll see if we can figure that out. I don't need it for a little while, and if we don't find it, it's fine. Um, but there's a bunch of I am statements. So you might remember Jesus saying, like, I am the uh, bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Uh, so, And then last week it was, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's pretty cool that, you know, Jesus actually is resurrection and life, like moves around and things literally come to life, like where Jesus is. Um, and so like this raising of Lazarus, this I'm the resurrection of the of the life, uh, I'm resurrection and the life, uh, and then Mary anointing a kind of this really significant thing where tensions are building, we've named all that kind of awkward stuff with the religious leaders. Uh, and then from here, things kind of unfold towards death, really, and Jesus dying. So this is like a pretty cool passage. And I loved that if you were following along here, you wouldn't have seen the disjunction between chapter 11 and chapter 12. You would have just seen it as a continuous story because that's how it's meant to be. Like this kind of Lazarus gets raised and then all of a sudden they're having dinner together and Mary is here doing this beautiful act. Um, and so we kind of have to keep those things together. 
Uh, so I'm just going to rejog our memory uh, of what kind of some of these key points of this whole story that we want to keep together is it's that we've got the illness and death of Lazarus. Lazarus and like Jesus awkwardly waits for an amount of time and then he comes back to Judea and the end of that little section is Thomas uh, saying you you know we'll go with you and uh, we may die with Jesus if we go back to Judea to save Lazarus so he's acknowledging that we're going into you know this is the point like this is fierce Um, then Jesus has this dialogue with Martha and a key little verse there is, I actually believe you're the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world. And Martha declares that, um, then Jesus has this dialogue with Mary and some other mourners who are there. And Mary's response is a little bit different. She's like, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And she's just there feeling that pain. And then we have the raising of, of Lazarus. Uh, And then we have what we read tonight, which is like the conversion of a whole bunch of Judeans and then the Sanhedrin kind of plotting and they want to kill Jesus. Um, And and that plot is really central now, like that's reached its head. And then we have this beautiful passage, which I'm going to be focusing on, of Mary anointing Jesus. And then we're back to the plotting to kill Jesus at the end of the passage. (laughs) So... Big themes of life and death here. Uh, It's Passover and there's a few Passover meals. They're symbolic for John. Uh, There's some buzz around town. Is Jesus going to be here? Do you reckon Jesus is going to show up? Like, and that, you know, all of the weight behind that is, you know, what that means for Jesus to be there and if he shows up. Um, And and also these threats to people who are going to follow Jesus. Like, there's, you know, it's real life threats. Um, And then we hear that we're at the house of Lazarus. Uh, Martha's there. Mary's there. um, Judas is there. Gosh, darn it, Judas. Um, Jesus and some other disciples are there. uh, And they're all just reclining over this Passover meal. And then this beautiful thing happens. Mary comes in, unbinds her hair, kneels down, pours oil and wipes Jesus' feet while he's reclining for dinner. Uh, And this perfumed oil uh, had a few different functions. Uh, Might be used in the house for cooking, for massaging, apparently for sexy times, settle down everyone. Um, Hospitality, but generally someone's like uh, head would be anointed in that setting. Uh, Could be medicinal and therapeutic purposes. Um, But kind of some of the ones that people focus on is that it was also potentially a status thing. So acknowledging royal status. So some have kind of associated this as like an acknowledgement of Jesus' kingship. Um, But most central is the use of perfumed oil uh, in ceremonies of embalming uh, at death. Uh, So when someone died, uh, they would be embalmed with these oils and we actually see it happen later in the passage. Um, And what happened within the Jewish uh, kind of passing death rituals is that the body would be left for a year uh, and the body would decay. Uh, Sometimes bodies were left outside, sometimes bodies were in tombs. um, And after a year, families would come back and just the bones would be there. Uh, And so then they would go and take the bones and put them in something called an ossuary. Uh, I tried to find a picture of this, but just didn't get anywhere. Um, And after a year, another ceremony happens 
where those bones are then buried again and this perfumed oil is used again. Uh, and that's actually a different kind of, it's not a mourning, it's not an acknowledgement of death, that's actually an acknowledgement of resurrection and life and hope that this person is then carried off to resurrection. So two, two very uh, significant things in this death ritual in first century Judaism where it's like we acknowledge death in embalming with oil and then we actually acknowledge life with this as well. Uh, and in some cases, it might be associated with transfiguration as well. So there's a story in Enoch, which is kind of in this intertestamental period, if you're familiar with it, of some writings that happen where oil anointing is associated with a transforming into divinity. So those are a few things, but that death ceremony and that life ceremony are what we really need to kind of focus on here. Uh, and then there's also this really intimate use of her hair. Um, and from what I read, um, it's difficult to deduce how kind of scandalous using her hair was or how like inappropriate using her hair was. You may have read different things. Uh, for a married woman, it would have been pretty inappropriate and, you know, uh, scandalous. Uh, for a single woman, not exactly sure. Um, but it, what it does suggest is a real rich intimacy and unconventionality and potentially to varying degrees. Um, it's enough that Judas is uncomfortable and confronted by it and he reads it negatively. Um, so that's kind of the perfumed oil and the significance of this. Um, I don't know about you and what your experience was in church, but I never heard it acknowledged growing up in my church that women are disciples of Jesus in all of the Gospels. I never, ever heard that. Uh, and sometimes, in fact, women are the better disciples, often, in fact, in all of our Gospels, maybe less explicitly in Matthew. I was never taught of this because of the impact of patriarchy in the Anglican church. And I saw it in this way. Often the acts of women were diminished when reading stories in the Bible, or they were kind of just completely overlooked. And it wasn't until three years ago when I started my master's, I was like, holy heck, all these fierce women are in that Bible? I've never heard of them. Um, femininity and things associated with the feminine were just reduced within the tradition. So emotion, intimacy, embodied faith. They were seen as inferior. Um, women were kind of seen as like the add-ons to the story, you know, rather than the central characters. Um, and their actions are often interpreted as passive, not active. So, for example, it could be said, Mary of Bethany is here, but she doesn't really know the significance of her actions. But the men who write about it later and write about Mary's actions of anointing and the men who read about her story and then interpret it are the ones who fully understand the significance. But Mary herself, she didn't really see or understand. That might be how it goes. And her leadership and her insight is completely overlooked because of patriarchal Christianity. And Mary of Bethany's beautiful theological insight in this act could go unacknowledged. And her leadership 
as a key disciple of Christ in the Gospel of John, could be dismissed. It is important for us to read critically in order to overturn years of patriarchal bias. We really need to read with an analysis of gender at some points at the forefront in order to tip these scales back to see the role of women in our faith and in our Bible. As it won't surprise you, I'm not going to do any of the things that I've just said. I'm not going to dismiss her. I'm really just going to try and highlight her. (laughs) Um, Because Mary and her actions here are so beautifully and deeply significant. Uh, And I think that what we should do is we should see them, be moved by them, and actually want to follow her leadership. This anointing scene after the raising of Lazarus at this pinnacle point of John is actually really rich in meaning. Firstly, Mary of Bethany is just showing thanksgiving for what Jesus has done in the life of her brother, Lazarus. She's acknowledging what that means. We're told the dinner is there in honour of Jesus and she's taking a moment to pause and offer love, a very embodied and intimate show of love for the one who has given life. In a way that as I reflected, I don't think I've seen the male disciples do. But in a way that we'll see Jesus himself do in the next chapter, where he washes his disciples' feet. And this show of thanksgiving, recognition and love for Jesus is just uniquely personal and beautiful, I think. It's a revelation of discipleship and leadership, which is only shown by Mary of Bethany, who is one of Jesus' female disciples. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus' self-giving love or any form of self-giving love calls for a self-giving response. And this beautiful scene is also an acknowledgement of the cost of what Jesus has done and is doing. Mary does understand. She's one of the only people at this point to really get it. That the cost of gifting the life to her brother Lazarus is directly linked to Jesus losing his. And this act of overturning death is followed by the provoking of his own death. They're linked. And we read in the previous passage that when they're going there, Thomas has said it, we're going down to die with him. Mary's only response so far has been, Lord, if you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Martha has declared him as Messiah, but now we see Mary of Bethany's response that she sees and she understands what Jesus has and is giving up, and she responds. And Mary honours this gifting of life, this pouring out that Jesus is doing in that pouring out of this costly perfume, which could have been up to a year's wages, I think the passage says. Um, She brings it, she wipes his feet because she's understood that only a gift this expensive is appropriate for what is happening in the life of Jesus. And that's where we kind of get this awkward, jarring thing about you'll always have the poor with you or, you know, you should have used this for the poor. But this thing is actually both extravagant and humble at the same time. It's this self-giving, costly self-giving that she's giving back to Jesus in response to seeing his costly self-giving. 
this comment about the poor by Judas is actually defended by Jesus. And, you know, we've kind of pointed out some of the, you know, problematic nature of the motive of Judas actually saying this. It's quite insincere. Um, Jesus seems to defend Mary about this thing. Um, that actually what he's doing is he doesn't care about the poor. He cares about himself. Um, Jesus also interprets Mary's actions as related to his burial. So it's directly linked by Jesus to some of this, um, this death stuff that I was talking about before. This is more than just a wiping of feet. This is a burial anointing. And it's the use of the perfume in this way that is actually appropriate. Like whether or not it could have been used for the poor or not, actually, this is what we use this for. This is what perfumed oil is used for because it's an anointing. It's an acknowledging of burial. And I think that's some of the kind of tension that we get there of like, actually, it is appropriate. Um, yes, it could have been used. It could have been sold. But this is what this oil is generally used for. And Mary has seen that it, it needs to happen because this is what's happening to me. Mary Bethany is the one who actually sees the weight and the brevity of what Jesus is doing and, and is about to do at this point in the narrative. This pouring of oil is a sacred burial tradition and it's acknowledging the impending death of Jesus. But it's also showing us life and hope directly linked with the story of Lazarus. Because we've just seen that Jesus actually overturned death and grief and tragedy and sorrow and brought resurrection out of that and brought life out of that. And so Mary here is also seeing that Jesus is not only going to death, but she points to the life that's to come and the overturning of death that Jesus will do as part of his anointing. And it's at this point I want to go to someone who knows a lot more about this than I do. Have we found our PowerPoint? I thought we might have. Um, this is from a theologian called Dorothy Lee, who has done a lot of work on John and the theology of John. Uh, she's Australian, um, which is amazing. The nexus beneath life and death, the life given to Lazarus, the death faced by Jesus, is emphasised in the perfume that Mary spills over the feet of Jesus. And the house was filled with fragrance of myrrh. The odour is so strong that it pervades the house. And in the period of Second Temple Judaism, women anointed the bodies of their beloved dead with spices and fragrant oils as a way of mourning their death and expressing grief. But the same burial customs also pointed to life. In the second burial, one year later, after the putrefaction of the flesh, the bones were laid carefully in, in an ossuary in hope of the resurrection of the dead. Something of the soul of the departed was held to reside in the bones, which we see in that Ezekiel passage. Uh, and in the same way, Mary's anointing is as much about life as about death. The fine perfume wafting through the house contrasts with the smell of death at the tomb of Lazarus, which we might remember from last week's reading. Martha says, don't go in there, Lord, it's going to smell. But Jesus reveals to her that unless it's faced, that odour of death can never be transfigured into the fragrance of life. The reek of death is transmuted into the fragrant odour of life. The Bethany family has faced the reality of death and found life at its centre. 
a life whose fragrance is infinitely stronger than the cloying stench of death. Jesus stands once more before the reader as resurrection and life. I just also wanted to reflect very briefly on Mary of Bethany as a disciple and the way that she shows discipleship. And then I want to ask you if there's anything left that you're sitting with. Um, So what we see in Mary of Bethany is in direct contrast to Judas and the other religious leaders who lead the plot to kill him. Uh, Mary of Bethany's leadership as a core follower of Jesus, I think, is uplifted here. And the dynamics of the conversation between the speechless show of love by Mary and the spoken words of condemnation of Judas, I think reveal an insidious dynamic that can happen within our communities of faith, where people bring those outside forces of death and decay into the community of those followers of Jesus who are following in faith. We see it here in the dismissing, the judging, the diminishing of the leadership and the discipleship of this wonderful woman. We see this in the ongoing dismissal in our world, in our churches, of things that are female, feminine, that show femininity. There are destructive forces which this community knows and has experienced from people within our own communities. We've seen it. We know it. And they're spotlighted and confronted by Jesus in this story. Though we ourselves, we're not immune to it. We're not immune to bringing our own egos, self-desire into the family. But I think we know how those structures work as well. And I hope this might be a reminder of the unique role of women as disciples and leaders of faith. Mary of Bethany shows us self-giving, costly love appropriate extravagance, humility, intimacy. And she shows us what faith in Jesus looks like as an authentic, intimate love in discipleship. Those are some of my thoughts. Anything else you're sitting with? Hmm. Yeah, Dave's just said thank you for focusing on the leadership of women in this passage because often it has been about the poor or these maybe other things that come out of it and that's been fruitful. Yeah, thanks, Dave.
Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try and summarise that as uh, often, yeah, the, the significance of what Mary is doing and the, this pinnacle point uh, and what she's acknowledging is often just diminished to, you know, an act of love or something quite, you know, submissive or passive. Um, and it's really, yeah, it is significant. Hmm. Hmm. Anything else sitting with people? I have a quote again from Dorothy. Um, again, because she just seems to summarize this in a really beautiful way. Um, so, the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary of Bethany. It's a vibrant symbol of the life that comes through death. The oil is myrrh for anointing the body of the beloved dead, yet its fragrance points to joyful and festive overcoming of death, the hope of a life that transcends death and replaces the stench of decay with the fragrant odour of life. It points to and anticipates the glorification of Jesus on the cross. And the anointing also symbolizes the communion that, that the disciples share with Jesus, that this relationship is mutual and reciprocal is made clear in the symbolism. The costliness of Jesus' gift of life is reciprocated by Mary's extravagant gesture. There are both ritual and sensuous overtones in her gestures and actions. Her caressing Jesus' feet is the ritual adoration directed to the one who, in the Johannine view, replaces the temple as the locus of true worship. The unashamed nature of the physical contact confirms the incarnation and the sanctity of the flesh. Hair, feet, hands are offered to the beloved in response to his divine self-giving flesh. The very tangibility of the symbolism opens a meaning that is both spiritual and embodied. Desire and intimacy lie at the core of discipleship. Mary's actions exemplify the love of the true disciple for the divine lover who has given himself, body and soul for the life of his friends. In this sense, Mary of Bethany represents the community of faith in its love and abiding thought that was a very beautiful reflection to ponder on um, of what we're doing here together and how that might be more embodied, more intimate, more hands, hair, feet. Um, yeah.